Welcome to Finance for Physicians, a show where we empower physicians like you to practice medicine the way you always dreamed you would. This podcast features doctors, physicians, and experts that share one main thing in common. We believe having control of our finances leads to having control of our lives. In a world where doctors' lives are often dictated by our needs to maximize income, pay back massive student loans, and buy homes, many of us give up reaching those goals. But it doesn't have to be this way. If you are ready to learn how financial wellness creates happier doctors and patients, then I'm your guy. I'm your host and financial expert, Daniel Wren. Let's get started. Tim, my man, what's up, dude? Well, the usual Another. stuff. It just, it never seems to change. And then at the same time, seems like everything's changing all at once. So there you go. Yeah. That's what's up. Well, I was expecting to also be with your lovely wife and she's unfortunately experiencing a migraine. So I understand her not being available. But on the other hand, this should be kind of exciting because one thing you'll learn about Tim is he's unfiltered, which is great. And especially I think with May not around could get a little off the rails, which should be exciting, right? Absolutely. All we need is the whiskey and bong hit like Joe Rogan, and we can really see where this goes, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I know we got lots to talk about, and I'm excited to kind of dig into some of the challenges we're experiencing in, in the healthcare world and some of your experiences going through that and kind of like going this entrepreneurship direction, which is there's a lot of cool stuff out there in that world. But maybe before we jump into that, I would love it if you could kind of give everyone a little bit of background on like your story and kind of how you got to where you are today. Okay. So graduated from medical school in 1992 in Canada in the, at the University of Saskatchewan up in the absolutely flat freezing cold prairies. It's where I grew up. That's where my family was from. Always loved skiing, did a ton of traveling for that and windsurfing. Loved all that outdoorsy stuff. I'd lived in Whistler in one of my kind of gap years and really wanted to live in the Northwest had a job offer in one of the small ski towns in Canada, and that all blew up because the Canadian government decided that you could only get a billing number to bill the government for your services if you had graduated from that province's medical school or done a residency there. So we're like, this is crazy. Meanwhile, somebody just randomly calls us from Oregon and says, hey, do you want to come down to the United States? And we're like, yeah, we'll do whatever. Like, we don't care. We have nothing encumbering, no kids at the, at the time. I love the Columbia River Gorge. It spent tons of summers there. We're like, let's go. We're, you know, an hour and a half from the coast, about an hour and a half from Bend and a couple hours from the gorge. So it was like perfect from a recreational perspective. It was small town medicine, which is what we wanted. So I did obstetrics in my family practice for 12 years. We did death investigations, worked in the ICU, did hospital medicine, did absolutely the whole gamut and just learned a lot of medicine and then switched over to urgent care about 10 years ago. Meanwhile, during this entire time, I had been working for the insurance company side of the business that we worked for. It was a, ended up being about a billion dollar a year multi-specialty healthcare system with a bunch of rural hospitals. So I got a kind of an inside look on some of the administrative side, done that work as well. And then we just kind of got entirely burned out on the corporate model. And I'm Mace, mostly retired, and I am working three-quarter time at a small private clinic in the town that we live in, which has been really quite rewarding. And we're doing the podcast thing, which hopefully we can continue to grow that and make that a more soluble business, shall we say. So that's yeah. the very small you know, elevator speech as far as where we came from and kind of where we are now. Yeah. So the system of medicine, I know we talked at length about it kind of was a big reason for pushing you guys this direction. I loved your analogy about the practice of medicine, medicine and dog poo tennis. Is that what you call it? Oh yes. That, that was playing. a long so, time ago when I did that one. I would love it if you could talk about playing dog poo tennis in the practice of medicine. Okay. So, so take, for instance, you are a highly trained tennis athlete. You know, you played in high school, you played when you were a kid, and you just love playing tennis. And then the rules of the game continue to slowly change. So your passion and your skill set is, you know, you have a tennis ball, you have a tennis racket, regulation field, 
or court rather. And then somebody just slowly starts to smear, like all the people in the surrounding area bring their dogs and their dogs start pooping on the tennis court. So initially it's irritating. It's like, you know, you step in it once in a while and you're like, this is ridiculous. Like we got to get a bigger fence around here. We're going to put locks on the door. And then eventually the entire court is just smeared in a thin two and a half inch veneer of dog poop. So every time you go to run to hit the ball, you're sliding in it and then you're smacking the ball and it's like hitting you in the face. And all that you're experiencing is essentially this bathing in dog poo. And that's exactly what, how I see what's happened in medicine. Like you take these very bright, highly trained people that really do want to care for people and they want to practice medicine. And then you start adding these encumbrances and you, you, it happens very slowly until you realize there's way more dog poo about this than there is anything to do with tennis. It is just a veneer of, you know what, that sort of resembles tennis and has very little to do with the game that I was trained to play. And I, I see corporate medicine, and maybe it's just because I'm older and jaded, but I see corporate medicine is, is that's, that's where it is now. It, healthcare isn't healthcare. Don't go to a doctor for healthcare. Go to a gym for healthcare. You should go to a doctor for disease care. If you're sick, you should see a doctor. I have a tremendous friend who's a great mechanic. He works me in all the time, fixes what's wrong with my car, but I don't get him to teach my kids how to drive. If you want to learn how to drive your body, that's what gyms are for. That's what nutritionists are for. That's what reading books are for. That's not what doctors are for. But somehow we've made this thing healthcare and we want to drive everything through this unbelievably expensive insurance system and somehow, and then, and then have me be the purveyor of health for patients that don't care about their health. Like as a primary care doctor, like I can't imagine anything more frustrating because you're not solving any problems. It's like playing tennis in a bunch of dog poo. It's exactly what it's like. But physicians seem to have an extremely high tolerance for playing in dog poo. Well, I think that's a problem. I, I, I think it's a problem. I remember one time I, you know, I, had, I got in this confrontation with one of my colleagues and I felt really bad. And I, I asked my wife about it and she says, well, your problem wasn't that you got in a confrontation. Your problem was, is that your fuse is too long. And if you would have just dealt with, was that my fuse is too long? Oh, if you would have dealt with it. If you would have not let things build up, then it never blows up. You know, if you deal with, if you maintain it, you know, you don't need a new engine. If you change your oil every 5,000 miles, I think that you know, medical training really does warp people into putting up with a lot of stuff you'd never put up with normally. And I think that that, I mean, I think it's good and bad, right? Because it's like the military, like you got to put up with stuff that's really, really difficult and you have to do it in a professional manner so you can maintain your skill set. But at the same time, it makes a lot of people very driven by, I think, things that are unhelpful in really helping people, helping yourself, your family, and bringing you know, evolving the medical system into something that's, you know, mutually beneficial to provider and patient. Yeah. And I think there's harm that happens. Not only it's frustrating, obviously, to play in a game that's, you don't, nobody wants to play in a bunch of dog poop, but I think the other effect is that you come home and you're grumpy. I mean, if you just got done playing tennis in a bunch of dog crap, you're going to be like ticked off at the world. And then you come home to your family and you're going to be angry at them. And, or even the patients, it's going to be harder to provide care and it's going to get in the way of doing what you kind of set out to do along the way. So there's all these like secondary effects, I think, of just this system of healthcare that we're in. That kind of, I mean, maybe do physicians, is that top of mind with physicians? Are they thinking about these like secondary effects that, that happen? Yeah, all the time, but it's, it's ridiculous, right? Because, you know, you know, physician burnout is the big thing, right? One of the last big systems I work for, you know, they have a physician champion for burnout. And so, you know, they put us all in a room and we're, they're going to talk about what they're rolling out in the, you know, for the system in the next two or three years, what their three-year plan is and how all the doctors are going to be part of this. And they start talking about burnout and they sit there for five minutes teaching you how to do meditation by like focusing on your breathing and your feet and the chair and all this. And I'm like, okay, you don't understand. Okay. This isn't that I'm stressed out because I haven't been financially responsible or I'm having a fight with my wife. This is a systemic cancer inside the entity and you are the purveyors of the cancer. Okay. So do you understand that? That is like, I got thrown in jail for a crime I didn't commit. And they throw me in the cell with the most heinous offender. And as he's abusing me day and night, 
they put a picture of a beach in Hawaii and tell me just to imagine that I'm there. I'm like, I'm like, no, no, no. I'm being assaulted. Maybe you can put me in another cell. So the burnout thing is very egregious to me because it makes it, it's like the discrepancies or the problems that we bring up in the healthcare system are somehow the, the physician's fault because we're feeling this pain. When in reality, I mean, I think that physicians have a tremendous amount to own because we gave our autonomy away to government regulators and gigantic insurance companies. I mean, we did that. We did that for financial security because we're not generally as a, as a group, very savvy business people. So we have to own that part. We have to own the part that we married the alcoholic because we did. I mean, I remember early in my career hearing these guys talk about, you know, cutbacks from Medicare or the federal government or whatever. And I'm like, well, we've just made ourselves drug addicts for public money. That means that we're going to be doing what they tell us to do. We're the ones that went to medical school. We're the ones that own the knowledge of how to treat patients. We're the ones that are the only people that can bill for services. You have to be a medical professional to bill for services, which then flows through the system. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant or a physical therapist or somebody with medical training. And yet somehow we gave that unbelievable amount of power away to economic interests so that they would pay us and we wouldn't have to worry about it. Do you think most physicians agree that the healthcare system's all jacked up? Well, of course, virtually everybody. So like that seems to be the consensus. And like you're saying, there's a huge number of physicians and there's a collective, huge, massive amount of power with that group, but yet, and I think if, for instance, if somehow we could get all of everybody on board would just be in like, eh, let's go do a new, new system or whatever, like solve the problems, <laughs> at least that would be a huge potential leap forward. But right now everybody acknowledges the problem and nothing's changing. It's like, <laughs> they're just working within the problem and not, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of cooperation or like banding together of like, and you would think that there would be because of such like the groups, there's a lot more power within the group, right? Well, right. But there's going to be multiple solutions to this problem. And the last group practice I worked for, literally one of their practice locations had a picture of Fauci up on the wall that said in Fauci, we trust. So I'm a free market, mostly libertarian guy. I mean, I can't countenance teaming up with somebody with those kind of like with that kind of just what I would call vacant, zero thinking sort of attitude. And that's the problem. I mean, politically for physicians, we're all over the map. You have very entrepreneurial people, which tend to be more conservative. You have people that are absolutely staunchly socialist, that the system should be a single payer and it should be the government that's the payer. So when you say team up and solve the problem, well, the solution to the problem is entirely different depending on kind of which one of these political factions you're in, right? So- I mean, I, I sat down on a radio debate with somebody and said, we don't have free market healthcare system. That's why it's expensive. And he thinks we do have a free market healthcare system and that's why it's expensive. And it should be 100% socialized. So we practiced in the same medical community and I sent him patients. He was a great referral source. He was a good guy. But I mean, so I see a couple of different ways of solving this because it, the key is, is really two things. Number one, it's, de it's decentralized power. So the power has to be away from federal regulators and gigantic business interests, which would be big pharma and big insurance. And well, and thirdly, the big healthcare entities. So you have to decentralize power. That means small physician practices, maybe a hundred, maybe five, depending on the community. And there's, and you're going to have to have a free market side, which works, I think, very, very well in primary care, which would be things like direct patient care, direct primary care, some direct specialty care. May and I interviewed a rheumatologist that does direct specialty care and is very successful at it, loves it, works on his own terms, doesn't deal with insurance companies. Then the other thing that you have to do, and I, I think there's always going to be a publicly funded side to this. And I think that they're probably, I think at least politically, there's no way we're ever going to get away from that. And maybe we shouldn't, is you need physician unions. As much of a non-union guy as I am, if you want to decentralize power and put power back in the hands of doctors taking care of patients, there's a place for physician unions. And we actually did an interview on our show. It's the longest, the single longest BS Free MD interview How was, long with, was, it? with, was it's almost two hours, <laughs> is with 
I might be over two hours. I can't remember. It was a while ago. So it was over a year ago. I drove, I dro- we drove May crazy because this guy was just great. And again, politically, we, ha- we probably don't agree on a single thing, but it was very fascinating because how he got into union organizing for physicians was he, he's like, why am I going to argue for money for rich people? Like that just seems dumb. That was his thinking. And then he started interviewing doctors and he said, they said, no, we need our power back so we can take care of patients the way we think is right. And he said every single conversation he had with physicians interested in unions was all based on patient care, not on their financial interest. And he said, I have to be part of this. And it was really, really interesting to listen to. And I don't think it's the solution, but I think it's a part of the solution of decentralizing power from these incredibly wealthy, powerful interests and putting it back in the hands where I think it's better served, at least for the patient, which is in the hands of the, the, the doctor, where my boss, ultimately my boss should be the patient, not the insurance company and not the government. Yeah. That's like you said earlier, direct primary care is a, the, I think the best example of current system where the boss is the patient, because there's, you, you've cut out all the middlemen and no insurance, no health hospital system. You're just like patient pays provider and provider provides service and patient pays as long as value is greater than cost. And it's pure and simple. And I think in our families that we work with that are in that model, love it. And they're not burning out or hating their work and it's the complete opposite. And, but I think, I think that's a very good example of like pure entrepreneurship. You know, you're not only are you starting a practice, you're starting like a non-traditional practice and you're kind of part of helping to solve the problem. I think there's even other flavors of entrepreneurship that even what you all are doing is like you're starting a podcast and you're kind of talking about some of these issues and trying to work through potential solutions to them. My opinion, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. My opinion is that I I think entrepreneurship is one of the best possible ways for physicians to like have an impact on the problem. It gets them into this like problem solving sort of situation, as opposed to now in the current healthcare system, they know the problems, but like, there's no solution. It's like, that's unacceptable to talk about the solution. Things don't get solved. It just kind of stays how it is. And they're kind of a cog in the wheel. But when you start talking about like, I'm starting a business or I'm creating a new thing that nobody has, like you were saying, rheumatology direct care, right? Is that what you said you interviewed somebody Mm -hmm. on? That's super interesting to me. That's like a new thing. I didn't even know it existed. Yeah, Michael, you, he has, you know, I, I'm not sure if he takes it. I, I think he's completely out of any insurance. Great guy, California. You can see him wherever he's licensed. He's got st- licenses in a, a whole bunch of states. And then, he, you know, it's it costs X for a new patient visit. It costs Y for a follow-up visit. He can prescribe medications, obviously, because he's licensed in a bunch of states. It's the perfect kind of specialty practice for, you know, telemedicine. And it, it really... There, but there's lots. I mean, like psychiatry, you could do that way. The coaching world has exploded. I mean, May and I kind of mock it because now everyone's a coach, right? And so, but at the same time, you know, we've kind of toyed with this concept of doctors are for sick people. Like, I really believe Jesus was right when he says only sick people need a doctor. I mean, that's, and, and, and I, and, and it's, and it's really the key. This idea that you go to a doctor for health coaching is a very expensive solution for a relatively inexpensive problem. It's like, I, one of my, I have switched over. I love building cars. I have switched over to electric impact tools because they are just unbelievably great, very powerful. So if I take my new favorite Milwaukee fuel impact wrench that can almost turn the earth and use it as a hammer, I destroy the tool because it's not intended for that. A, a hammer is used as a hammer. That's what it's for. And so talking to somebody about the fact that they should quit smoking or that they need to eat a certain diet and exercise a certain amount should not be done by somebody that spends at least 10, if not 14 years to train as a physician. You want me to solve complex problems based on disease, not be a lifestyle coach. I mean, otherwise I'll just get rid of my medical license. And we're, I mean, May and I are considering this too, just not having a license, not having any encumbrances of medicine, and then just being a lifestyle coach. I mean, I've done it for 
30 years, I might as well just do it for cash and I can do it online and I can do it across the border. All my Canadian friends can do it. I mean, and, and, and it just seems so silly. Like we're, we're counseling, we're getting paid for metrics in primary care based on asking people how many beers they drink. I get it. Alcoholism is a real big problem, but you're burning resource of the brightest, most expensive resource you have. There's other ways to do that. That's far more efficient and way less expensive. Yeah. I think there's all these solutions that are out there. And I think we could go on and on. I have ideas of possible solutions and ways to kind of, even an individual like you or someone listening could kind of start to make headway on solving some of these issues. Or maybe if you're younger, like avoiding them as you go into practice, but it's kind of scary and goes against the grain of things. Like I think in training, it's like this assumption that you're going to go work for a system and do the thing and, and whatnot. And it's kind of scary to go against the grain of things. But I think that is where it's at. Like that's where when you're in a environment that's like just jacked up, toxic work environment, and you continue working in that, that is going to ruin you. You all, when we were talking before, you talked about the Bible verse from Matthew. Which one was it about? Soul, selling your soul. Oh, it's, what is it worth it if a man inherits the entire earth and forfeits his soul? And the last corporate job that we had, we really recognized the fact that that is 100% the truth. Like if you are trading your soul for money, it's never going to be a fair trade. And there's no amount of money that you can buy back your soul with. And I, I believe that's 100% true. Like it really is. And so, so you will turn to other soul crushing activities to try to blunt that reality, like whether it's drugs or alcohol or illegitimate relationships or all the soul and mind numbing things that we do to try to escape our, our realities. But it's scary. Like I get it. I get it. Like we educate people, they graduate. You would know this more intimately than me being in the financial services side of things. You know, they graduate with 250 or $450,000 worth of debt. They could start their own business, which is going to cost them more money. They can build up a practice, which is going to take time. So you're kind of mortgaging your future on a time respect, or you can just go sign up for a company and live like a resident for a few years and pay off your debts and et cetera, et cetera. And maybe it's worth it for a while. But I mean, I've known lots of people that are stuck in jobs they hate purely because they got the payoffs from the government to go to a rural area to practice medicine and get their loans paid off. Yeah. And, you know, they types people into like 10 year contracts. Like, I, <laughs> like don't sign a 10 year contract. That's so That's long. 10 years, nobody knows what they're going to be doing in two years, much less 10 years. Yeah. I mean, we, we were fortunate. We stayed in a place and raised our kids and for three decades, but I mean, that is not the norm. And I have no idea really, we have an idea where we want to live. I have no idea where I'll be living in a year, which is awesome. What would you tell, say one of your children is starting in practice or maybe before that, maybe they're in medical school and they're like, Hey dad, what path should I take in this healthcare system? I want to be a physician. What would you tell them? Well, I would say just keep your eyes open and understand exactly what you're getting into. So, so there are advantages to being in a big system because there are, it's guaranteed income. You're not having to do the administrative load. You're not having to hire and fire people, but you have to live with all the choices that people that don't have your training are making for you. So that's an issue. But if you own that and recognize it, you know, maybe you do it for a few years and then you start your own business or you start, you know, become, I think the guys that go straight into the, like I'm a prim primary care doctor. So direct primary care, I think they're, they're very, very happy and they're very deliberate in what they're doing. But I also understand it's very difficult to do that based on the financial structure of medical training and trying to get paid back quickly. So I recognize that, but I would always have the biggest thing I would tell them, which is totally different than what we, we did, is I would be developing side gigs the second I started practice and recognizing that your value as a physician goes way beyond seeing patients. And that took me a really, really long time to recognize. Can you talk about some like examples of what that might look like? Okay. So I started into the kind of insurance company administrative side of my job quite early. I had worked for maybe 10 years, maybe not even. And I did it honestly, because at that point I was riding a lot of dirt bikes and doing a lot of skydiving. And I wanted to be able to have a job I could do from a wheelchair. So I could read charts from a wheelchair. Yeah. So sounds kind of bleak, but there's disability insurance, but it's nice to continue working when you're 35 years old and, you know, screwed yourself up on a 
on a motorcycle. So that part I kind of recognized, but I, it was still very narrow in medicine. What we've realized in just the last two and a half years of doing the podcast is there is a gazillion other things that you can do that bring a tremendous amount of value to people. And honestly, once you build up a huge repertoire of, of experience, I think that there's, I mean, I don't know if it's just maybe I'm blind or arrogant or dumb, or I hope I'm correct. But like I had this discussion yesterday with my wife and I just said, you know, I think what we can bring to the table of value now communicating our experiences to people is far more valuable than we could con contribute just seeing one patient at a time. It's kind of bold, but I really believe that. And you kind of have to have that sort of self-belief and medical training has a way of pounding out a lot of self-belief. <laughs> There's a lot of that soul crushing. And I think the other, there, one more thing, one more thing I'd say, I'd say in doctors for my entire career. And this is like, this goes back to the early nineties when things were very different than they are now. Physicians, especially as the newer generation has come are primarily driven emotionally by fear. And that's a really, really bad way to live your life. Do not be driven by fear. Fear that they're not going to pay their debts off. Fear that they're going to harm a patient. Fear that they're going to get sued. Fear that they're not going to fit in because they have different views on whatever it may be. Fear that they're going to have a license issue. Like all of this stuff. And you cannot live like that. Yeah, we interviewed Jordan Grummet, Doc G, a while back. And... He's a hospice physician. I don't know if you know of him, but he had a ton of experienced people late stage of their life. And, you know, one of the biggest regrets he saw was that they regretted not leaning into their fears and like facing them and basically like doing it anyway. People just kind of get paralyzed by fear and then they get old and they're like, man, I wish I'd done X, Y, Z. It's, it's not a good, good way to live and you end up regretting it. Yeah, that's where we're living right now. We're, we're like, you know, we're young and healthy enough that we can kind of lean into what we think we should do now. Most of our medical practice, and I'm speaking mostly for myself, was great. I mean, it was awesome. I was a small town guy, delivered tons of families, took care of families through the entire, you know, exactly what I had I wanted to do. And then it got weird and we stayed a little bit too long. Like, you know, I think a lot of people do that, but we're now, I think we're trying to just sort of sell most of what we own and get the courage to just do what we really feel like we should do, which is try to communicate our hearts and our passions and interview some really, really cool people. Mm -hmm. Jeff is okay. asking about what is the, this, the story you told him about Cleveland shocks? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we have an idea percolating for another show we want to do where we, we drive across the country in a motorhome and explore medical history. So there was a guy named Dr. Beck and he's the first person to successfully defibrillate anybody. So he worked in Cleveland. I'm not sure if this predated the Cleveland Clinic or not. It was in like the late 1940s. And he was doing open heart procedure and the kid arrests. And so he's doing like internal car cardiac massage. Like he's literally has his hand on this guy's heart, this 14-year-old pumping blood to his brain. And he says to one of the assistants, go down to the lab across the street. And I got this thing made of like spoons and a big coil and bring it back here. So they wheel this defibrillator in there and it literally is using like wooden spoons as the insulators and some weird capacitance thing that he figured out by reading these studies from some guy, I think in Sweden. And he sparks this kid with this defibrillator and nothing happens. He does it the second time the kid comes back to life. They finish the surgery and he lives like a normal lifespan. This what? is the first person. So you think of that, you think of the courage, like you think in our healthcare system, would anyone have the, the nards to be able to like get this thing he was working on in the basement of some lab to cardiovert somebody and say, I mean, cardioversion saved Damar Hamlin's life two mm -hmm. weeks ago. That that's was crazy. it. That's where it came from. Huh. Isn't that nuts? That is nuts. Yeah. I mean, that's innovation and it's, you got to be courageous and I think the healthcare system kind of like just drives that away. Like it, it's not a healthy, innovative system where you can kind of, I mean, you can come up with ideas like that. At least I can't think of examples of people doing that today, which is well, that, unfortunate. That, that's why the true innovations in healthcare is not going to come from the healthcare system. It's going to come from completely outside. You know, it's just like, it's like, if you look at, you know, what are the innovations in music production? It all came from the computer industry. It came com from somebody completely out because, you know, who would have ever thought of just using algorithms to 
to interpret music and then edit it and you know when they were using tape for a million years so it's just that's just the nature of innovation yeah so going back to your soul and and losing your soul and 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 i think that's important point because i think people in the moment i don't think people are like yeah i'm losing my soul <laughs> i think that's kind of a there's a possibly a lack of awareness of maybe you being in in conflict with your ethics or your values and doing things that you don't think are right but you're just doing it anyway and not really realizing it but i'm curious like how do you know when you're in conflict there like how do you know if you're doing something that's basically like gonna cause you to feel like you're losing your soul well, I, I think it's really, really difficult. And I think it's especially difficult for people with a lot of training because you fall back on your training and it's not introspective training necessarily. And, you know, the other side of that is you can navel gaze so much that you're worthless to everybody. So that, you know, there's a point that like life is painful and there's going to be a certain amount of discomfort, but that discomfort should be like running a marathon where it's like, wow, that was really cool. I'm glad I did that. And so I think you have to look at the things around you. So if you want to know what you care about, look at your bank account and for me, my garage, that'll tell you 99% of what you need to know. And I think that's the same thing with regards to these soul activities. You know, what, when was the last time you did something that made you feel really alive? That's the question I would ask. That's such a good question. Was it going for a run? Was it taking your kids to Disneyland? Was, what was it? And then the next question is, what was it about that that did that for you? So what was it for you? What was the last thing that you did? That... Well, there's it generally speaking on a day-to-day -day basis, it's largely working out. I mean, I don't necessarily work out so much for vanity reasons. I work out for two reasons, to not be completely insane, only partially, and to be able to have enough athletic reserve to do the other activities that I like doing, like water skiing and downhill skiing and so forth. So there's that. And then when you think of other outside activities, I mean, I had a, I had the perfect life, not perfect, but I, when I was the most balanced as far as work and doing other stuff, my wife gave me Fridays. I had Fridays off and I would get up in the morning and I'd go water ski for an hour, hour and a half. Sometimes I'd ride motorcycles and then I'd go and do five skydives and I'd get home at five kids come home from school. I'm perfect. That was <laughs> like perfect. And, and that's like very rewarding. You feel it's I don't know if happy is even the right word. It's like joy, like you feel like you're doing, living out your values and being the person you're meant to be. Right, because we've mentioned it several times on the podcast. This Oprahification of the world, where you know your job is supposed to like you speak to the universe, the universe speaks back to you, and you get this perfect job with tons of money and all this balance. Well, that's not life. I mean, that's just I think that's just ridiculous. Because if that's the case, lots of people, as I say, somewhat crassly, a lot of people have spoken to the universe and the universe said, you're a dick. So sorry, but you know, it doesn't work out for everybody. So jobs are unpleasant, but they shouldn't be primarily unpleasant. I mean, practicing medicine is a massive privilege and should be seen as a privilege and it should be rewarding. It doesn't mean every day is rewarding or every patient encounter is rewarding. Of course it's not, but in the totality, it should be rewarding. You're giving your knowledge to people. You're helping people. You're being compensated fairly for it. That's a rewarding job. When it's not rewarding anymore, it's because of other factors. And I've said this, I don't know how many times, hard work does not burn a single person out. Meaningless work burns people out. What's burning out doctors is meaningless work. My friend that owns the business I work, work at, he works harder than he's ever worked in his life because he owns a business, but nothing he does is meaningless. It's incredibly taxing. It's not meaningless. Ticking a gazillion boxes so the insurance company is happy, being on the phone to make sure that I can get a CT scan for my patient that I absolutely know needs the CT scan, that's meaningless labor. And that burns people out. If you made that go away, people would be happy as heck working for gigantic. Yeah. System. How often do you take a look at what's going on in your life and take kind of like an inventory almost of like, is the XYZ thing like, is that, you know, in good connection with my values and my purpose? Because I think the challenge in healthcare or really in anything is that you get in this 
autopilot groove of just grinding it out and working a million hours. And you don't have this introspective thought exercise of like, Hmm, was I getting joy out of that? Like, was this, is this in conflict of my values? Is this, am I living into the person I want to become? And it's, it's almost like a muscle you got to work out, right? Like, yeah, now I think about it almost every day because we're actually in a very challenging point of life, which is a trend. We're in a transition. We're in a transitionary period. And so it's, it's interesting talking to people that are younger than me that are kind of in the middle of raising families and whatnot. It's like, wow, that's really exciting. Well, it's kind of exciting, but it's, it's really quite terrifying because, you know, you saved money, now you're spending it and you're earning less. And, you know, we're trying to develop this property that we have and then sell it, which is a huge challenge because there's always a million factors that you can't predict. And I nailed it last night. And I think that this is the key. I said to me, she's, I'm like, why is this so distressing to us? Like, we, like we can solve these problems. It's not the end of the world. And it's because we're doctors and we're used to solving problems and having control over situations. And you get into a situation you don't have control in and it's unbelievably uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's good discomfort. I think it's super duper healthy because that's working out that kind of discomfort where, you know, you just lean into it and you go, okay, well, what's the next step? And then you just do the next step. So I think about my life inventory now, at least a couple times a month, if, you know, in more detail, and I talk to it with May a fair bit. And the other thing that's really, really important is you got to have relationships completely outside of medicine where you can bounce some stuff off of people. Like true relationships where you're actually vulnerable and you can speak truth and all that. Exactly. You know, like I have one friend where we've had these kind of conversations for 20 years or so. And it was really cool because I texted him and I said, you know, I think I finally realized that I'm, I'm actually more of a creative than I am anything else. Hmm. And he said, dude, I've been telling you that for 20 years. <laughs> Good thing yeah. you finally listened. <laughs> yeah. Part of why my ski trip was so fun. First of all, I love skiing. And I was telling you, I got back at 8.30 this morning in the airport. I flew overnight. I skied yesterday, nice. flew overnight, red eye, and then came back at 8, drove in at 8 just to come to my first meeting. <laughs> it was, I love skiing and I love the experience of like nature combined with like the athletic activity and the challenge of it. I mean, all parts of skiing I love. But then on top of it, like this trip was a group of guys that have like super deep, open trusting conversation and we had a ton of like super great conversation and it just made it a fantastic and it was only like three days but it was an unbelievable trip because of all those factors and so i think of that as like an example of if i'm looking back at my time because time is a big component it's like what do you use where do you spend your time where do you spend your resources that's like a win that's like a doing what i need to do but in other instances of my life and I'm sure everybody has this, you look at it and you're like, that's the complete opposite. Like that's soul crushing. And there's probably a lot of stuff in the middle, but like just the act of taking that time to review a little bit, and it doesn't have to take hours and hours. How long does it take you to review your, I mean, do you spend an hour a month? I mean, well, I think a lot of it is more not really unconscious, but it's, it's more like I'll be out, I'll be out running or doing something and I'll be thinking about just the right thing to do. Or like, are we just completely insane? Like, should we just get normal jobs and work for 10 more years? And we're like, no, can't do that. My wife's like, I'll, I'll work in Starbucks before I would ever feel like I felt before. Like, I, I don't want to sound too flippant about this stuff because I understand at the beginning of your career, it's different than at the end of your career. At least it should be. <laughs> Hopefully it is. And so Joe Rogan talks about this reaching escape velocity where you can kind of be free to say and do whatever you want, because if they take your job away, it doesn't matter. You don't need a job. And we're not quite there yet, but we're closer. But I can't imagine the stresses when you have, you bought the car and you bought the Tesla and you got $400,000 in debt and you have to keep your foot to the floor 100% of the time. I think don't buy expensive stuff in your first three to five years of practice would be another piece of advice, which I didn't do. I'm giving you advice of failures that we made. Failing forward. Yeah. I mean, that that's a really, really important concept because you might not like it and there might be way more satisfying jobs for you inside medicine, seeing patients that are just outside of the more lucrative, gigantic system. And I think you have to leave that door open. You should be happy most of the time. You should, you should go on a, on a trip. Here's another thing. You should go on a trip or if you're a tennis player and you play tennis every Thursday afternoon with one of your friends, that should make you feel good that you produce something at work. And now you get to do this thing that you love. If you're, if you feel like that, 
you're mostly balanced. If you're into the second serve of your game and it's like, oh, crap, I got to go to work again tomorrow, then you got a problem. Or if the only activity you do is going to the bar, that's probably an issue too. You should be like, man, I, you know, that was a super hard day to work today at the ER. I had two patients that were innovated and I managed them and I got them sent off to the specialist and I helped the, and man, that was, I don't want another day like that for another two years, but wow, was that cool that I got to do that? That's where you want to live because, it, you know, you don't want to live, you don't wanna, like having an easy life is dumb. You don't want an easy life. What it really, really comes down to, a lot of this is like spiritual or philosophical, however you want to put it. It's really meaning and meaningless tasks, especially that get in the way of really meaningful tasks. That is a very, almost that is almost an impossible thing psychically for us to figure out. That's mm -hmm. the problem. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a lot of people that don't feel like you were just describing about their work. They're just like, they come home and they go to the bar or they come home and they're playing tennis and the, it's bogging them down and they're like, ah, I gotta go do work, some work stuff or whatever. And it's definitely in causing problems. But I think there's a lot of paralysis around dealing with that. And so this is where I think money can possibly be, there's a lot of factors, but money a lot of times comes into play. And it goes back to like, we've talked about fear usually is the underlying issue is there's this fear of not ch making change, which could potentially cause financial instability. And especially if you've kind of gotten used to this lifestyle that, with the high paying job. And so at that point, it's like paralyzing almost to potentially to even consider a big change when you're in this chronic environment. But at the end of the day, like you have choices and I don't think money doesn't directly buy happiness. Like you don't, a lot of people think that the money is the solution. They're like working through this train wreck job situation so that they can get enough money to go do something else. But that in itself doesn't solve the problem. I think you don't have to be financially independent to say no to a terrible job. Exactly. But you have to, you know, I have this affliction, it's called old cars. And like I told May, I mean, the thing is, why do I do the hobby? Because it makes me happy. You know, I share it with my friends and I've done it since I was a teenager. But if I knew that I was going to be 15 times more satisfied with my life by getting rid of that hobby, then you just get rid of it. But most of us don't want to take the time to look at it and go, well, what if I got rid of this? Like, what if I took the 4,000 square foot house and lived in a 2,000 square foot house and moved to a slightly less affluent neighborhood and drove 10-year-old cars? If I did that and that freed up the cash to have a different job that I really was satisfied doing, why would that be bad? Like, it's not bad. It's an absolute net benefit. And your kids don't care. They don't. They want to know that you're there. They want your time. And they eventually want to, you know, have relationships with other kids. Not everyone's kid is like my son, who, when he was eight, said, if you're not going to take us to Disney World, why did you have kids? Oh, my gosh. Uh, wow. So, yeah. And that I was like, he is a genius, though. He's an aerospace engineer. So something turned out all right. So. It, uh, he was already thinking. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Way ahead. That was the same kid when we read the Bible verse about you can't serve God and money. He started weeping when he was like six. He's like, I really like money. Oh, he's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, he most people don't go through that experience until they're like adults. Yes, ex exactly. A very but... mature thought. Yeah, it was. Well, he's always been sort of the old soul in that regard. So it's kind of, kind of, kind of interesting. So work-life balance doesn't exist. You just yeah. try to get closer. And when you get it, you'll get it for two seconds, like walking on a tight mm -hmm. rope, and then you have to get it for another two seconds. But it can be pursued and it can be better. And medicine should be satisfying. It, we gave mm -hmm. up way too much to do it, to not be satisfied by trying to help other people and build something of, of benefit and reputation and all of these things we went into medicine in the first place for. Last few minutes, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about like your experiences with following more of your purpose and like, you know, meaning and what we were talking about. And it seems like you're, you know, pretty well in tune with that. And I'm curious to kind of hear like, what does that look like now? Like, how are you following through with that? And I know the podcast is such a great vehicle to kind of help that's one of the avenues to potentially use to do that but maybe we could talk about that yeah so there's really two things for me personally one was helping one of our former residents establish a clinic in a town where you know we have a fair bit of 
I guess I'd say political or at least reputation capital. Patients like us, they've seen us. I delivered tons of them. You know, I'd be delivering the kids I delivered now if I was still doing obstetrics. So we did that. And then we did something very interesting. We started hiring people well within the guidelines of the law, but we didn't have vaccine mandates in our clinic. So when we started up in September of 2021, we could hire a whole bunch of people that wanted to opt out of that. So that was easy. So it was quite easy to find good people, actually. And then we started treating COVID. We just said, we don't care if you're sick, we're just going to treat you. So we managed to get our hands on a ton of monoclonal antibodies. The Oregon Health Authority was actually really generous with that. We just asked and they said yes. And we became kind of this startup de facto COVID treatment center, treating people with, you know, EAU approved medications, didn't have to go, you know, off the reservation on other stuff, told people what nutraceuticals to take. And we treated about a thousand patients in a town of 10,000 people. And that, that was fun. That was like, you're feeling good about work. Right. I mean, we've talked about this, may not have talked about this extensively. I mean, it's like, this is a worldwide pandemic. This is my Normandy as a doctor. And I'm just going to yeah. sit in the duck boat. No, this is when we're supposed to go out there and dodge bullets. Yeah. Fun is probably not the right word, but it was satisfying. Doing good work. I mean, like hard work, doing good work, feeling good, sleeping good at night. Yes. So there was that. And then the whole entity of the podcast has just introduced us to people that have completely changed our outlook. Not so much on like our core principles of how we live, but have reinforced those and really taught us that there's other things that we can do that bring value because that's the hardest part now is we're at the stage we've done this for a couple of years we have a body of work we have people that listen to us regularly we have people we're trying to get to listen to us but you know we're still in the stage where getting this to monetize it to essentially replace our income is you know that's the challenge the business side which we are not savvy at is kind of where we're entering into now. And that's, you know, it's a little scary, but we're doctors. We've got licenses. You got a backup plan. If things go horribly wrong, I could do locums for a couple of years. I mean, mm-hmm. the world won't end. That's good scary though. That's like leaning into your fear of and but you kind of know deep down, it's probably the right thing to do, but you're like, it's also a little scary. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I am so convinced about a couple of ideas that we have for shows that we really have to just push, like you do it. It's weird. But I learned this literally the first or second day I was an attending physician, which is when you start something new, even if you're the most well-trained guy in the entire world, when you're on the sharp end of the rope, you have to pretend that you're a doctor. That's what it feels like. You know, you've got the credentials, you've got the training. They tell you that you can see patients on your own. But when you first start, you feel like you're pretending and that's okay. So I'm just going to pretend like I'm good at talking, you know? But that's what it feels like. And doctors are terrible for imposter syndrome because we've always been told you got to fit into this mold of doing what you're told or you're going to kill people. And most of the time, that's absolutely correct. So yeah. it's, not a, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. Do you wish you had made some of these shifts earlier? Yeah, 100%. 100%. You know, we bought our forever house when I was not, not mid-30s, but we stayed in it forever. So that probably financially worked out. But I would have left corporate medicine way, 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 way earlier like at mm-hmm. least 10 years earlier. It would have been a bigger risk potentially, but at the same time, now I'd have had 10 years of accruing, you know, potentially a business, potentially in a business with, with enough different arms of income that you, you know, you, you have more passive income. That's for sure. You know, 45 would have been the perfect time to pull the ripcord and say, I'm going to, I have a whole bunch of training and I'm valuable yeah. But you get lazy, you know, medicine after 15 years is not as challenging as it was, you know, when you're five years into it and you punch the clock and you know what you're going to get paid and it's easy to take nice vacations. And as I would use in my biker terms, I should have nutted up way earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, but it's a hard decision in the moment. And right. And if it would have catastrophically failed, I might've told you that I made the right decision <laughs> now. So you don't, you don't yeah. know. I mean, but failing, that's the thing. It's not really taught in a lot of these principles are not taught in medical training at all. It's one of my favorite books is called failing forward, John Maxwell. And it's just this basic entrepreneurship concept that like failing is a good thing. And it's one step closer to where you want to go. And so the faster you can fail, the faster you get to this place of solid, 
Yeah. And it's, you know, I heard another really interesting, I think it was Glenn Beck who's talking about this, who is LDS. And he talked about, he goes, how come so many Mormon men are successful at business? And he said, it's because they know that no is just no for one thing. It's not no for the rest of your life. So when you've knocked on a whole bunch of doors and 80 of them are no, and one is yes, you realize all you need is one yes. And in business, that's absolutely true. You don't need to be successful at every business idea you have. You have to be successful at one and then make that more successful. Mm. And, and that's super, super powerful. And it's, it's weird because, you know, we've got to a place now, you know, we, we've asked the weirdest people to, for interviews and they say yes. And some of them just <laughs> ghost you. And we're like, oh, whatever. We don't care. It doesn't matter. You yeah. ask, they say no. It doesn't, it's no reflection on me. Right. Yeah. That's a good spot to be. Yeah. So your podcast, BS Free MD, any other places people can find you or? Yes. Instagram. We do a little bit on Facebook, really no Twitter stuff per se. Instagram. If you want to see more of the wacky side, please follow us on Instagram. It's just BS Free MD. You'll be able to find it really easily at, at Instagram. There's some very interesting videos on there. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely check out the podcast too. They have a great podcast. I've listened to multiple episodes and I've shared them with multiple people because you have such, it's unfiltered. So it's hard to get, I mean, everybody's so careful about what they say, but you guys like speak truthfully, you know, you don't hold back stuff, which is really nice because you can get like the full story on things. So that, that's, what's great about y'all's podcast. And I would, I would definitely check it out if y'all haven't checked it out already. Yeah, we would absolutely appreciate that. And if any of you want, have ideas or questions for guests, we have a, a website, bsfreemd.com. There's a portal there to email us. And yeah, we're always open. We've, I mean, we've interviewed top field dragster champion who had all sorts of medical problems. Eddie Braun, who was a Hollywood stuntman that recreated Evil Knievel's jump over Snake River Canyon, but actually succeeded. You know, Peter McCullough a couple times. It's just been really, really fun. And we've made a bunch of friends. We travel around now and go meet people just because we talk to them on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fun. Well, Tim, I appreciate it. Tell May we hope she feels better and hopefully that migraine short-lived and good luck with the surgery tomorrow too. You bet. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Thanks, Tim. You've been listening to Finance for Physicians. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast player. On this show, we believe that when you prioritize your finances, you take better care of yourself, have more fulfilling relationships with your families, and most importantly, provide higher quality care for your patients. If you feel this way too, and wanna learn more, then make sure to join our community. Follow the Finance for Physicians Facebook group for bonus content and sneak peeks on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.